CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, October 20th, uh, 2023. Uh, and um, wow, there's uh, two matters uh that I want to discuss with discuss with my distinguished guest, uh, and um, one of them there is just it's just very grim and gloom and doomy, but uh, it must be discussed. Uh, and the other one could be really grim, except that there's just so much comic element, maybe just darkly satirical element uh, in it uh, that uh, we'll close with that one. Uh, and uh, to give you an idea what the latter is, uh, I am going to read a tweet. I'm not going to read a news article. I'm going to read a tweet that listener Frank sent to me. Thank you, listener Frank. Uh, from my distinguished guest. It was a tweet, only it's an X. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm like one of those uh, newspapers. Uh, X, uh, the forum previously known as Twitter. Oh, really? We don't know that. <laughs> How many times are you going to let us know that he changed the name and one, one more piece of lunacy from Elon Musk? I know what I'll do. I'll destroy the company I spent millions of dollars buying. Anyway, here is the quote from tweet uh, from the Twitter from my distinguished guest. Quote, I could really get used to everyday. <laughs> sorry, I got to get through this. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Here we go. Quote, I could really get used to to everyday beginning with <laughs> God, treat one more time. Here we go. I could really get used to everyday beginning with a fresh humiliation of Jim Jordan. <laughs> oh, Lord, you got to laugh, ladies and gentlemen, to keep from crying, and sometimes I do them both. <laughs> Jim Jordan, 0 for 3. <laughs> Uh, in his efforts to be House Speaker, and every day brings with it a fresh humiliation of this totally obnoxious, vile excuse for a human being who only exists, ladies and gentlemen, because of gerrymandering. I saw an image of his map that he that elected him. It's so gerrymandered to pick up every MAGA vote anywhere near. Oh, God, Ohio, what a mess you've made of things. All right, without any further ado, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, the author of that aforementioned X or tweet, or whatever the hell you call him these days, to introduce yourself. Okay, thanks, Ben. Um, it is great to be back. Uh, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University here in the great city of Chicago. I'm the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, columnist for Slate and Newsweek, and... Uh, guilty as charged, the author of that of that tweet, 
which uh, if folks stick through us through the grim stuff, we'll, we'll get into the comedy later because there is a lot of comedy here with Jim Jordan. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just this image of Jim Jordan rushing through the halls of Congress uh, without a jacket on, because <laughs> this whole thing where he doesn't wear a jacket, uh, I, I, well, we'll get into Jim Jordan in a little bit. Uh, Jim Jordan. Uh, wants to be speaker so bad and is doing such a bad job of it. Uh, two essays that I urge everybody to read regarding uh, the war in the Middle East, uh, Israel and Palestine, Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, one is in Slate, The Trap You Really Don't Have to Fall Into When You Talk About Israel and Hamas. Uh, and the other is in Newsweek. Uh, David wrote both. Donald Trump is partly to blame for the situation in Israel. Uh, both of them very illuminating uh, and, uh, remarkably, um, how do I put this? Just remarkably, uh, sensitive to the situation in, uh, on both sides. Uh, David, I got to give you a lot of credit. Um, you do not pull your punch in criticism of Israeli policy. And you have that. We did a whole show. I don't know if you remember. We've done so many shows about this issue. You took the deep dive on it and you were extremely critical Netanyahu policy, and pointing out the foibles of just the inconsistencies, the unsustainability of what Israel is trying to do. And at the same time, showing uh, sympathy, you know, compassion uh, for Israelis who uh, are dealing with uh, the slaughter of a couple of weeks ago. So why don't we talk uh, about the first essay, the tr and then we'll get into the Donald Trump aspect of it, which is fascinating. He laid out the false sense of security uh, that Donald Trump gave Israelis. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But why don't you talk about the, the central themes of your essay, the trap you really don't have to fall into when you talk about Israel and Hamas? Sure. Um, and yeah, and, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. Um, you know, as soon as this stuff happened, <clears throat> I started going back and forth with the editor at Slate about you know, what, what we might have to say about this. And he actually didn't know... <laughs> I've only written for Slate for like a year. Um, and he didn't know about my background as a Middle East scholar. You know, I, I, and maybe your listeners don't know either. I, tell, I say this every once in a while, but I, I used to be a specialist um, in sort of international politics of the Middle East and um, most, like, more focused on Egypt stuff. But I spent some time in the region and I've read several like thousand page <laughs> treatises on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and so I still, I feel like I have a little bit of value to add, um, in terms of context about what's going on. And, um, I was like, here's a couple things I could write about like, how the two state solution fell apart and the role that Hamas played in that. Um, and also I'm a little bit annoyed with some of the stuff I've seen, um, from, from my, uh, like ostensible allies on the left that really, um, I thought lacked some nuance and, in, in the terms of like celebrating, uh, what, what was happening. Um, I think a lot of people were doing that, but I do think that there's still a pervasive um, lack of acknowledgement or sympathy for the civilian victims of the Hamas attack, which were, uh, you know, the more uh, I've actually had to limit <clears throat> the amount that I read about it because it's so horrific. Um, and so I was frustrated with that dynamic um, and, uh, and I wanted to write something about it sort of as we were going back and forth with the drafts. Um, Eric Levitz over at New York Magazine put out something actually quite similar <laughs> um, in terms of what he was seeing. And so we had to kind of fine tune it a little bit. Um, but I guess the, but the takeaway was um, that being vociferously opposed to Hamas as a, as a political organization, as a terrorist organization, is perfectly compatible um, with criticizing the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And is also compatible with um, expressing sort of basic human sympathy um, with the civilians who were killed in Israel, <clears throat> in southern Israel, over the course of those attacks last Saturday. Um, something that I, I didn't think would be as controversial as it ended up being. Um, but uh, I'm, you know, I really, really <laughs> can't emphasize enough what uh, like a horrendous group of people Hamas is. You know, um, this is a group that has been that has carried out dozens and dozens of suicide bombing attacks, particularly in the 1990s and the early 2000s that targeted Israeli civilians and, you know, dance halls and, and buses and um, things like that. Uh, they really had a, 
Uh, they really had a thing for attacking public transit to, to make people feel as unsafe as possible. And that violence was always about, from the very beginning, that violence was always about undermining um, what we call the Oslo process um, that began in the early 1990s that was supposed to end with the establishment of a Palestinian state. Um, and Hamas are... Uh, Two, they're like extremists on two, in two different ways, right? Like they're religious fanatics um, whose like social uh, and global outlook is very, very, very similar to like the Taliban um, and other uh, extremist groups like Al Qaeda. Um, and they're also extremists on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? Like um, they believe that there should be a single state um, in what is what we now refer to as Israel-Palestine. And that single state should be uh, uh, like an Islamic theocracy. Okay. Um, just, uh, you know, just a non-starter, right? Um, in terms of like any kind of realistic appraisal of what might be the end game here. Um, and they have just, they have tons of blood on their hands. Uh, they're, they're awful, awful people. Um, and I hold them, I don't know if anybody cares what I think. <laughs> But I hold them at least like 50% accountable for the collapse of the two-state peace process in the late 1990s. So um, the article was a way of looking at that history, um, begging people to have and display sympathy for Israeli civilians, um, because I, I will I will die on the hill um, of saying that like little kids and families and, and people who are just in their houses, this is, by the way, these attacks were in, you know, quote unquote, Israel property, proper, right? This was not, these were not the occupied territories. Um, these are just civilians. People are not responsible for the crimes of their government. And it is wrong to kill innocent people. Whatever their government is doing, it is wrong to kill innocent people. Okay. Um, and I, I thought then, I think actually even more after watching what's been unfolding over the last 10 days, I'm, I'm even more convinced um, that a failure to, to acknowledge that, to offer sympathy um, to our, our Jewish friends and, and allies um, on, on the left here in the United States and in Israel undermines the moral, uh, the moral case for a two-state solution, undermines the moral case for caring about Palestinians as human beings uh, as much as we care about Israelis as human beings. Um, and I just, I really think that that, dyna that dynamic is, is poisonous. And so the, the essay was just an attempt to, to lay out some of that history, um, to, uh, to elevate or lift up Voices calling for peace, um, some of them who are dead, like former Egyptian president Anwar Sadat, um, and uh, and in, in some ways to kind of to stake out that position so that in the coming weeks and months, I feel free to to offer my uh, my sharp criticism of what Israel is doing in response, if that makes sense. So that's that's kind of what it was all about. Well, all right, let's get into the uh, the other part of the equation. Uh, you said Hamas is responsible for uh, undermining, what, 50% of the collapse of the two-state uh, solution. Uh, and um, so who's responsible for the other 50%? Great question. <laughs> um, I mean, like, the human being who is still alive who is most responsible for the collapse of the two-state solution is Netanyahu himself, the current prime minister of Israel, um, who, if you know, if your listeners are not aware of this, was first made prime minister of Israel in 1996. I say made. He was elected. Right? He was elected prime minister in 1996. Um, after the architect of the Oslo peace accords, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated by a Jewish extremist who was opposed to the Oslo process. Right? You got mirror images of each other on both sides. Okay, and I'm not trying to erase the power dynamic here between Israelis and Palestinians. Okay, but I'm saying that the extremists um, on the, the the Jewish side and the extremists on the Palestinian side wanted the exact same thing, right? And they wanted the collapse of the Oslo peace process so that they could continue to pursue their maximal goals um, of erecting a single state in this territory. Um, that that's the state that they want, with the character that they want. Um, and that would be inhospitable, to say the least, to the other side. Um, and so Netanyahu was the leader of the, of the right-wing opposition um, that, that opposed the, the Oslo peace process. Um, he didn't fire the weapon that killed Rabin, but, uh, but I think a lot of people would argue that he was complicit, uh, that he appeared at rallies where violence was being urged against, uh, against the architects of that process. Um, 
And, you know, there were other acts of violence by, by Jewish Israelis uh, against Palestinians, most notably a, a massacre at a mosque in 1994 that killed 30-something uh, Muslim Palestinian worshippers, uh, was also designed to undermine the process. Um, and most of those people are dead, Ben. You know what I mean? Like, Arafat is dead. Um, and, uh, and a lot of the people involved in, in Hamas in the 1990s are dead because they've been killed. <laughs> um, but Netanyahu is still there. He's like the Forrest Gump of this, of this conflict. Um, and, and here he is again, right? Like, up to no good. Um, I, he's like, everybody is mad at Netanyahu right now, right? Like, you've got, I think, a lot of Israelis who are furious with Netanyahu for, for prioritizing the safety and security of new settlers in the West Bank. Um, over other civilians and other parts of, of Israel, particularly uh, those towns and cities in southern Israel that are like a stone's throw from the Gaza Strip. Um, and you also have you know, people who have been consistent the whole time um, that the status quo is unsustainable, right? Like you can't just like keep Palestinians in this open-air prison indefinitely and expect them to uh, be happy about it or not to engage in acts of retaliation or violence. Um, and so, um, but, but Netanyahu has a lot of blood on his hands too. You know, he really does. And he, he got what he wanted, Ben. I mean, he wanted the Oslo process destroyed. He didn't want to give the West Bank in particular. I mean, he didn't want to give the Gaza Strip back either, right? but that, that ship has kind of sailed. Uh, but he didn't want to give the West Bank to the Palestinian Authority to make it part of a Palestinian state um, and has used his entire political career uh, under the guise of keeping Israelis safe. Um, his whole political career has been dedicated um, to the creeping annexation of the West Bank and the destruction of the two-state solution as a potential um, as a potential endgame for this conflict. So that's what, you know, he's got blood on his hands too. All right. And um, by the way, just the recommendation to people who uh, read other things besides uh, nonfiction, if you want to get a sense of the um, sort of the... Uh, mentality of Netanyahu. I really urge people to read a novel called The Netanyahu's by a novelist, a, a satiric novelist. Uh, Joshua Cohen is his name. It's more about Netanyahu's father, uh, who was a professor uh, and had a brief foray. I think he taught at Cornell, doing this off the top of my head, uh, in the 60s or 50s. A fascinating, funny, darkly funny novel, The Netanyahu's it is not a history book. It's not about the current conflict. It takes place in the United States, and it features uh, prominently Netanyahu's father. All right. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, so as I read uh, your two essays uh, together, the one that talked about uh, in larger terms what's been going on for the last 50 years uh, in this area, and then the one that talked uh, – more specifically about Donald Trump's role in this over the last four years, uh, the takeaway I had is that Donald Trump gave Israelis the notion that Netanyahu's larger strategy would work. And um, so what this requires is a little explanation, uh, first of all, what Netanyahu's larger strategy was. Uh, in terms of, quote-unquote, handling Palestinians uh, and uh, the role Trump played with it. So let's start with, first, the Netanyahu larger strategy uh, that he's been uh, uh, employing throughout his career. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> back to his sort of origins in Israeli politics, he has been uh, a committed proponent of the not just the enlargement of settlement blocks in the West Bank, um, but the idea that like Israel won the West Bank fair and square in 1967 um, and has no obligation to return that territory to the Palestinians. Right? Um, people who are committed to that ideological project will have a series of ways they split hairs about international law um, that will justify whatever the right wing in Israel wants to do. Okay. Uh, for example, I'll just give you one example. I should be familiar with UN Security Council Resolution 242, right? This is commonly known as the Land for Peace um, resolution that was passed by the UN Security Council in the wake of the, the 67 war, um, during which Israel acquired, you know, quote unquote, acquired the West Bank and the Gaza Strip from Jordan and Egypt. 
Um, and it talks about um, the inadmissibility of territories acquired um, through uh, through warfare. Um, so I'm not do- I'm not doing a, a direct quote right now, but I could pull it up if I needed to. But um, there was like a long argument about whether the preposition the should be placed before territories. Right? And Israel's argument at the time that it, the United States ultimately backed in its own way um, was that if you put the before territories, it obligates Israel to give back all of the territories that it acquired in 67. And if you took out that preposition, it would mean that by returning some of the territories, like by returning territories, um, they will have fulfilled their obligation under UN Security Council 242. It could, an- could annex the West Bank by being like, look, we gave back the Sinai to Egypt, um, but we're going to keep the West Bank. And, you know, we did we gave back some territories, so it's not on us, right? Um, there's other hair-splitting stuff about how the Geneva Conventions don't apply um, to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip um, because Israel doesn't qualify as an occupying power because these weren't countries, um, and had not been made an official part of the countries that they were taken from in 1967. Right? Um, I say this not to really get so deep into the weeds, right? But like, just to give a little bit of context um, and to remind people that like there are rationales for Israel's position. Like the right wing in Israel ha- has its own rationalizations instead of legal arguments, um, instead of, of moral arguments about why the West Bank need not ever be given to the Palestinians as part of a Palestinian state. Um, and that has been central to Netanyahu's political career. Right? Very early on, um, he realized that by expanding the settlement population in the West Bank um, and sort of serving as like the protector of those people, um, the champion of those people, uh, the, making the argument that they weren't doing anything wrong, um, would make it almost impossible politically for Israel to ever give this territory back to the Palestinians. Um, so if you want like a deep dive into this, uh, my, my, actually my dissertation advisor at the University of Pennsylvania was a guy named Ian Lustig, um, who's written several books about this, um, the most recent of which is called Paradigm Lost. That's about um, sort of the, the obliteration of the two-state solution, like the role that Netanyahu played in that, um, and it's sort of like its foundations in Israeli politics. Um, yeah, that, that book will tell you all this stuff better than I can uh, on this show right now. But um, annexing the West Bank or large, large portions of the West Bank and either dispossessing the remaining Palestinians, um, convincing them to flee to other Arab countries um, or keeping them in this like um, – limbo status of statelessness um, and, and misery forever. Um, all of those things are better for Netanyahu and that he wants more than a negotiated solution that gives the Palestinians any kind of sovereignty over this territory. So that's him. <laughs> Not a good guy. Now, when I uh, think about it, I don't know if Israel is capable Imagine a world, we're not in this world yet, uh, uh, but imagine a world where uh, a government in Israel said, you know what, uh, we were wrong. I cannot imagine this world as I'm saying this. The wrong part will never be said, but whatever. Uh, we want to give uh, the West Bank, uh, we want to return uh, to uh, Palestinians. And, uh, the, and so we want, here you go. The full West Bank, David. Uh, I can't imagine this at all. But I believe there would be civil war in Israel uh, if that Israeli government tried to uh, force settlers to leave the West Bank. And I keep reading about how settlers are more and more armed uh, and providing their own defense, quote unquote. Uh, And so that may be an impossibility. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is a really difficult question. Um, And in a lot of ways, you are sorting through two possibilities for resolving the conflict, both of which seem sort of equally implausible at the moment with today's politics. Um, I think that you really put, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the Israeli side of this equation, um, which is that any agreement with the Palestinians that creates a Palestinian state um, is going to have to be, in a way, put to a vote in Israel, right? Like the, 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 whatever prime minister who signs that agreement 
uh, will have to stand for re-election. And Israel is a parliamentary system in which the, the PM can be deposed at any moment. In fact, they've had, I think, what, um, like four national elections in the last five years or five national elections in the last four years. Like, uh, uh, it's been a very unstable government, governing coalition in Israel. Um, and because they keep moving settlers to the West Bank, it's now over 600,000 people there. Um, that has become a critical electoral block um, for the right wing in Israel. Um, and has, has like, in a lot of important ways, undermined or destroyed uh, the, the capacity of Israel, even if it elected a government that wanted to do so, it has really undermined the capacity of any kind of peace-seeking government uh, to enter into negotiations that would involve the evacuation of any of those people. Um, and, you know, if we think back 20, 22 years, um, they actually had got to the point where they weren't actually going to evacuate most of those settlers in the West Bank. Or like Israel was going to be able to annex uh, certain uh, settlement blocks, right? These are um, large areas of settlement, like for example, in East Jerusalem. Uh, and there was going to be like land swaps where the Palestinians would be compensated for that territory rather than having to evacuate at the time, you know, 400,000 people was now significantly more people. Um, and so it's just like, you could sit down with a group of geniuses and be like, how would a government like this that was willing to sign the agreement that was even offered in 2000, how would you get those group, that group of people into power how would they survive the signing of the agreement? Um, and how would you prevent, as you know, a, a civil war? Um, and it's it's a really tough equation. And, and it's like the alternative is, is what we call the one-state solution. Um, that was the, the recommendation of the minority report of the United Nations um, Special Committee on Palestine in, in 1947. Uh, if you remember, the majority report recommended a partition, uh, a state for the Palestinians, a state for the Jews. Um, and the minority report was like, no, this is nuts, <laughs> right? Like they got to figure out a way to have all of these people under a single government, single sovereignty, um, and put institutions into place that makes everybody feel secure. Uh, and like they've realized their national ambitions without having it be exclusive to them, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of activism in recent years, uh, on the Palestinian side has, landed on the idea of some kind of single sovereignty uh, as being the only realistic path um, to the resolution of this conflict. But it's like, and I, I happen to agree with that. Um, I think it would have been better to put a two-state solution into place when that was a realistic option in the late 90s. Um, it feels like that ship has sailed, um, but like no one will acknowledge it. You know what I mean? Like the American government, the Biden administration still talks like a two-state solution is where we're headed. Um, everybody's like, I've got to return to the negotiating process to get two states. And it's like, nobody wants, I mean, like, I don't think that has a majority in either Palestine or Israel anymore. Okay. Um, but if the idea is that like Palestinians and, um, and Israeli Jews will have to figure out a way to live together in this territory, I just, I could not emphasize enough the way that last Saturday's events um, harmed the, the possibility of that ever happening, you know, uh, like the road to that solution, uh, people always talk about the power differential, right? And if you acknowledge that power differential, like, yes, Israel, I think Israel bears more responsibility for the collapse of that process than the Palestinians do. Um, but you, you also have to acknowledge that the solution, um, you know, the, the, the settlement runs right through the hearts and minds of Israeli Jews who have to be convinced, um, that entering into a, a final status negotiation that involves sharing the country with Palestinians is something that they could countenance and live with and feel secure about. And I, I, I feel like what, what has happened has set that project back 10 years. Um, and it's, it's like, we're further away than ever from a two-state solution. We're further away than ever from a one-state solution. You know, Israel doesn't, they're not saying anything about like what happens after Hamas is gone. It's just like, well, we return to the status quo of like fencing in the Palestinians and never giving them statehood. Um, and it's like, this is why we told your listeners this is really depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't have any ideas, but I mean, like, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm going to die on the hill of like civilians or innocent people. Don't kill them. Um, but like beyond that, it's just it's so hard to envision anybody mustering the political capital, the will the moral courage um, to head down that path. Um, 
And so it, it's, it's really, it's really a sad situation. It really is. And I know, I mean, I know a lot of, I know a lot of Palestinians from my time in the Middle East. Um, I know a lot of Israelis from my time in the Middle East and my time in grad school. Um, and it's like, everybody's on social media, just posting diametrically opposed stuff and not acknowledging anybody's suffering on the other side. It's really depressing. It's just, I just, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm frustrated with it. I'm not, I don't have, I'm not a party to this conflict. You know what I mean? I'm not Palestinian and I'm not Jewish. I'm not Israeli. It's like, but as an outsider, man, I you just, I don't know what to say anymore. Yeah. All right. Now let's, uh, I hear you. And it's just the utter madness of Netanyahu at this point after all of his policies of the last, what is, it's been 27 years, isn't that wild, uh, for him to say, uh, we are going to eradicate Hamas, like that's something he could even achieve, like that wouldn't just, that onslaught wouldn't just lead to thousands and thousands and thousands of more deaths, that wouldn't just create more hatred toward Israel and Israeli from Palestinians. It's just complete lunacy. Uh, This is how I view it. To me, the first step would have been as hard as this is for anybody to, like, I can't, I've never seen the United States government do this. So I realize I'm saying what I'm saying is so idealistic. It's so hopeless. But at the moment of October 7th, when the, uh, the attack began, once the attack was uh, over, just pause. You know what I'm saying? Once the fence was rebuilt, just pause. Mourn the dead. Think about what led <laughs> your contribution to all this, but no, you know what I'm saying? Oh no, I'll get everybody in my country to rally around me while I plunge us into greater just slaughter. It just utter madness, David. And um, it just builds a sense of hopelessness uh, because the voices of peace, if there are any, are just completely lost uh, with the cries for war. And we saw that happen in 9-11 in our country. So Americans don't act so holy because you did the same freaking thing with George Bush launching two wars, not one, two wars. All right, let's talk about, I'll get off my soapbox, but I just always feel compelled to say that um, and sort of beg Israel not to continue to slaughter in Gaza and just pull back and reflect for a moment and make your next plans. Um, So let's talk about Donald Trump's role. Fascinating essay that you wrote. Uh, and, and I guess um, uh, Donald Trump was what we call an enabler to uh, Netanyahu with his policies over the last four years, which are so bizarre because he was saying he was doing this out of a love for Israel while he was leading a party that was showing in many ways, in the fringes anyway, a hatred for Jews. Figure that one out, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, love Israel, not so much love for Jewish people. Uh, your current uh, MAGA movement. Um, so take us back to uh, the f- four years of Trump and his uh, enabling of Netanyahu. Sure. I mean, Donald Trump was like, you know, at the time must have felt like the greatest gift uh, that the Israeli far right has ever received. You know, um, from from the moment he got into office, he seemed just more than willing to do the bidding of a, of a, of a particular political faction in Israel um, that was ideologically aligned with Netanyahu, um, that wanted to see the annexation of as much of the West Bank as possible while doing nothing to address um, the humanitarian or the political situation of Palestinians themselves. Um, and he engaged in a series of not just symbolic, but but material moves um, to to change longstanding American policy that not even George W. Bush was willing to walk away from. Okay, but um, Donald Trump, for example, signed off on the annexation of the Golan Heights, which was a, a small slice of territory 
uh, seized from Syria in 1967 that was had been as recently as the early 2000s the subject of negotiations between Israel and Syria to give it back. Uh, Donald Trump was like, fine, do it, annex it. Um, the um, Israeli, like the Israeli far right had been, had been maneuvering for years and years and years to get the United States to move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem um, as a, as a symbol, like, right. Like at a material level, then it doesn't matter where the, where the U S embassy is. Right. It's like, it's, it is what it is. It's there what it, for what it's there for. It's uh, a make work program for CIA agents. And um, <laughs> so, but the, but the Israeli far right wanted it moved to Jerusalem to, to get a signal from the American government that the American government no longer believes that Israel has to give any part of East Jerusalem back to a Palestinian state. Right. Um, like the line from the two state crowd for years and years and years. And I say that I was one of them. Okay. Um, the line from the two state crowd was like, uh, 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 one capital for two peoples. You know what I mean? Like somehow they would find enough of East Jerusalem to give to the Palestinians that they could call it the capital of their state. Um, something, something, <laughs> the holy sites that was never figured out. Um, but, uh, but the U S never did it. Because by moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, including territory that's like no man's land, that is disputed, occupied territory, the part of the embassy was built on, um, they, were, they were sending the signal to the Israelis like, you've got carte blanche to do whatever you want here. And I mean, like, annex East Jerusalem. You never have to give it back. Put as many people there as you want. Um, and uh, it was really like, I don't know if you remember at the time, but like a lot of people on the left or people who were advocates of Palestinian statehood and humanity were like, this is terrible, right? This is awful. This is going to set off another round of violence. Um, and it's going to make people really, really furious with the United States for, for like no discernible gain. Um, and when it, when the whole territory didn't immediately erupt in violence, the far right in both of our countries did like this victory dance. They were like, see, I told you, you can just move the, you can just move the embassy to Jerusalem. No, like no harm, no foul. Right. You guys were freaking out about nothing, right? Like, okay, that has been proven uh, quite wrong. Um, and Donald Trump was um, committed to a process that uh, I'm sad to say that Biden continued to, which was the project of, of, of negotiating separate peace treaties between Israel and other Arab states to continue isolating the Palestinians uh, and, to, and to normalize sort of eternal Israeli occupation of, of the West Bank and Gaza Strip or annexation or whatever you want to call it. Um, like they wanted to pick off uh, Arab states who were till, still technically in a state of war with Israel, one by one by one by one, um, until the facts on the ground spoke for themselves. Um, and, and Israel could just like, you know, finally just say in public, like we're never giving this stuff back, right? Like this is Israel. Um, and so, uh, you know, Trump said his... Idiot son, son-in-law, uh, Jared Kushner to the Middle East to, to promote this like uh, comically never going to happen peace plan, um, brokered a peace agreement um, with like the United Arab Emirates and Israel um, and uh, Morocco, right? Like everything that Donald Trump could have done to signal to the Israeli far right that they can get away with literally anything that they want um, without any policy consequences in the alliance. He did. He just did their bidding. Um, and he had domestic political reason and cover to do it, too, because uh, evangelical Christians who are like the most critical voting bloc for Republicans um, are very pro-Israel, not for reasons that I think would make uh, any Jews in the world happy if they knew why. Right. Like what happens at the end of times, uh, according to Christian theology, is not good for the Jews, Ben. Not good, yeah. right? So, um, oh, <laughs> but like they don't think that far ahead, right? Um, they think in political time, and so Donald Trump um, really extinguished the last embers in American foreign policy of the idea that we were seriously pursuing a two-state solution to this conflict. Um, and when he left office, I think he had gotten away with it. Um, Joe Biden never gave him any reason to doubt that either, but because he picked up the baton of negotiating with the Saudis uh, on a separate peace agreement, like that was going to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't think Joe Biden has covered himself in glory on this either. 
Um, but Trump really did walk back a number of longstanding American policies, some of which, you know, honestly, were just lip service at that point. But still, like there was a principle behind them. And that principle is now gone. Um, and Joe Biden has done absolutely nothing to reestablish them. Yeah, no, I, I uh, as you know, uh, and we make fun of uh, myself for doing this all the time, a regular reader of New York Times uh, columns uh, and editorials and down through the years of the Trump years. I've just been read one column after another about uh, how like brilliant, I don't know, smart the Israelis are. And they, Netanyahu is referred to as Bibi, like, like, like personalizes it. I'm like, like he's our friend, you know, like people calling me Benny, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, okay, he's not my friend. This guy is like a terrible human being. You know, I just, but I just like the normalization of the policy uh, of Trump and Netanyahu that was like giving the Israelis this false sense of security that all they had to do was build fences and lock away Palestinians uh, and then try to keep up. I still see these articles, David, one by one, you know, like, uh, Hamas is developing a drone. I just read this in the Washington Post. A drone that could skim across the water and blow things up. Israel is already coming up with a counter weapon to deal with that drone. So it's just like this arms race. You know, the Iron Dome will intercept all the the uh, missiles that got the, uh, the Hamas is firing into Israel, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and that leaves that false sense of security and says, uh, enables Israel to say, okay, Saudis, we'll cut a deal with you. You don't have to worry about the Palestinians. They don't even exist anymore. Uh, and, and you're right. When there was no immediate like impact on moving the embassy, the attitude I read in these columns is like, it worked. And then R Trump bragged about it. You know, when he was running for reelection, the others said they couldn't move the embassy. I moved it right away, you know, and, I get these easy emails from like the, I don't know what it is, but it's the, the Jewish Republicans. And they're like, we love Trump. He moved the embassy. He loves Israel. I'm like, you guys are crazy. You guys are blind. <laughs> and then blows up. And everybody's like, whoa, what? And then a quick oh, Saudi deal. Uh-uh, Saudis aren't going anywhere. Saudis aren't going anywhere in this deal now. You know what I'm saying, David? They're worried about their own stability in their country. Yeah. So <laughs> utter freaking madness <laughs> uh, from Donald Trump, who um, you're right about the, the son-in-law sending him off. Uh, to negotiate them. Yes, I'll put my son-in-law on this. He's Jewish. He can figure this out. <laughs> Uh, uh, all right. Biden goes to Israel, um, hugs Netanyahu. Wow. Your thoughts about Joe Biden's uh, trip to Israel? Oh, man, what a can of worms here. Um, <laughs> this is becoming a problem for Democrats, Ben, I, mean, I have to say, um, because this is an this is an issue that divides the Democratic coalition, like basically down the middle at this point. Um you have voters under the age of 35 or so who are, are much more pro-Palestinian than older Democrats are. Um, and you have Biden uh, sort of giving the impression of an uncritical embrace of the Israeli response to this. Okay. There's like caveat, 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 but those caveats feel buried. Okay. And by going to Israel and embracing Netanyahu so openly and keeping all of their disagreements kind of hush-hush for now, um, it appears to endorse uh, what Israel is doing right now, you know? Um, and I, I think that that, I don't know if it's apparent to everybody yet, but I think that what Israel is doing uh, will very soon be revealed to be like beyond the policy consensus in the U.S. about what should be done in retaliation for this attack, okay? I think most normies in the U.S., like people who don't pay tons of attention to politics, who don't know uh, the history of the conflict, um, are like, yeah, I mean, go get Hamas, right? Like, these are awful people. Um, do what you need to do. Um, and I'm not, like, really realizing um, that the Gaza Strip is, like, a 25-mile slab of, of the desert about the size of Chicago with, like, a little bit less population than Chicago. 
uh, and that any long-term operation uh, is going to involve massive civilian casualties um, on the Palestinian side of people who had nothing to do with any of this. Um, and what you hear coming out of Israel right now, um, you know, this leak, that leak, um, you know, people talking to reporters is really dark, man. I mean, it's like they're talking about like, well, um, you know, in World War II, I mean, they did what they had to do to Japan and Germany. Uh, to, you know, sorry, a lot of civilians died, but but that's the way it was. Um, and so <clears throat> I'm afraid that Biden has given a green light to Netanyahu, whatever he may he be like, uh, you know, my friend just trying to kill as few Palestinians as possible, right? Is like, is not a leash. You know what I mean? It's not, he has not set up any red lines, you know, like here are the weapons, here's the aid, do whatever you want, try to kill as few people as possible. And what Netanyahu hears is like, here's the aid, here are the weapons, do whatever you want, right? And until somebody clarifies that, that's what he's going to do. Um, I don't think that they care about Palestinian casualties, you know, and like on a human level, I understand like, you know, a lot of Israelis are like, I don't care about that right now. Right. Like I just lost a bunch of my friends and family. Um, you know, like I, but man, I think, I think sometimes about what I would do, if, if, what I would be capable of wanting to do if somebody harmed my children or something. You know what I mean? And it's dark stuff, man. I mean, but this is why we have a society. Like, this is why you have laws. Like, people can't just like, go murder the murderers. Right? That's not how things work. Um, and there's no restraint. There is no meaningful restraint on Netanyahu's government right now in terms of what they do to the Palestinians in response to all this. Right? Are, are they going to, like, just bury the whole place in concrete like Assad in Syria? No. Um, are they going to conduct military operations that I think are... Uh, less interested in reducing civilian casualties than normal? Yeah. Um, and, and even before the operation has started, they're pushing half the population of Gaza uh, to the southern border of the Gaza Strip. Egypt won't let them in. Um, you know, they cut off water and electricity and not allowing anything in. I mean, this is just, it's just, it's like barbarism, you know, like the, like the, the very barbaric, immoral, unjustifiable things that Hamas did does not give Israel the green light to just to just murder civilians out of vengeance. So I'm concerned um, on a human level about the consequences of Biden's embrace of Netanyahu. I don't mean the physical embrace, but you know what I mean, like the right, like the like the trip there and the sort of the uncritical, like do whatever you want. Um, and I'm also increasingly concerned. Everything you know, what I see on Twitter, what I hear from friends um, about, like a sort of a democratic civil war about this. I don't, again, don't mean a shooting war. I just mean a real split in democratic politics between people who want to uncritically back the Palestinians and people who want to uncritically back the Israelis. You know, um, it's like Eric Adams uh, versus Ilhan Omar and like no, you know, no nuance. Um, and so I'm really concerned about the impact that this issue will have on a variety of different things that are, uh, that are important for democratic success next year. I don't mean to sound cynical, like this is all about the Democrats, you know what I mean? But I mean, it's like there is a Democratic president um, running the show in terms of the U.S. response to this. We are heavily involved in this situation. Um, and the politics of it are really difficult and hard to navigate. Um, and I just, I don't think Biden is the guy to do it, man. I mean, I think he's like, was like on this issue in particular, it was like he was entombed in 1985 and he's just been like exhumed um, uh, and, and is like, almost to the right of Trump on this issue. It's, it's just, it's, it's really bizarre. Well, uh, okay. I'll push back there. Uh, I will say this. It was the wrong policy in 1985 as well. Uh, and um, I mean, if there was a moment in time, I think about, I was a little kid, but 1967, all the wrong lessons taken from the six day war, man. And that could be a whole show. All right. We're not going to go down that road. I mean, there's so much history here. We could do show after show, like the wrong lessons of the 1967, the six day war. Um, but uh, no, I, this is on the democratic side and I'll tell you why it's like every other issue in the country today with, uh, and I'll go down the list. You've heard me on this subject before, but uh, global warming. Well, there you go. Right. Put that one at the top of the list, how to fund government, 
whether we should fund government, who pays what portion of the taxes that go to government, race relationships, you know, how uh, are we going to continue to uh, protect black citizens in this country uh, and um, just keep whatever gains we've had from the 60s, on and on and on, police relations with uh, low-income black communities, every single issue that our country is struggling with, Republicans are freaking worthless. They've taken a position where they don't deal with it. They just mock and malign anybody that they disagree with in order to rile up their crowd. Uh, and they, they, they're not even interested in funding government. We'll get into that in a little bit. So when I think of uh, the issue of Israel and Palestine, it's from Republicans, it's just whatever you, it's like they're open. Like if you listen to the Republican debate right now, David, on this issue, it's just like whatever you want, Netanyahu, whatever you want to do, Netanyahu. And if the Democrats even suggest a nuance, it's like they're anti-Semitic. They, they, they want to they don't they hate Jews, which is so bizarre coming from MAGA. I just want to point that out because um, so much anti-Semitism in MAGA. So it is a Democratic it's like everything else, David. Every solution has to come from the Democrats, uh, and it has to come in the face of a propaganda barrage from Republicans that will force Democrats to the right. That's how I see it. Do, do you see it the same way? <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, there's there's overwhelming pressure on Democratic elected officials right now um, to, to stand with Israel, um, and I think there's overwhelming pressure – um, to erase any nuance from that stance. You know what I mean? Um, believing that the polling suggests that, you know, uh, people just side with the Israelis more on, on this on the overarching issue. People still sympathize with the Israelis more, um, which is true. Okay. But it's not as clear cut as it was 20 years ago. And there's an emerging split in the Democratic Party um, between the sort of like, Biden position on the conflict, which is like lip service um, to the to the plight of the Palestinians, but in practice, um, more or less uncritical support for Israeli policy. And you have younger Democrats, you have like this, you know, people in the squad um, who who just don't see it that way. And they they see American policy, longstanding American policy is part of the problem here. Um, as as normalizing, justifying, giving cover to the to the mistreatment of Palestinians, um, and and, and I, I I happen to share that appraisal, <clears throat> but um, I do think that there are you know or, organizations and individuals who are I don't know they're they're talking about it in a way that is almost designed to alienate like Jewish Democrats, you know? Um, and that includes like not taking a second to acknowledge the suffering of Israeli civilians. Um, it's, I think, a, like a reflexive hostility to everything about Israel. Um, and it's like things that happen at these rallies, like, like chanting Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, um, <laughs> which is very common at pro-Palestinian rallies. It's just, it's not helpful. Whatever the origin of that phrase or its its role as like a resistance slogan, you know, don't take it, literally take it seriously, like that kind of thing, you know. Um, but but the way that, what, what like liberal Jewish Democrats hear when they hear that chanted, um, it, it's not, it's not good, right? And so you have foundational critical pieces of the democratic coalition who have, I think, increasingly diverged on what the response should be uh, to this in particular, what what the general position of the party should be on these questions. It's Again, it's a generational split, um, as you see in a lot of things that divide Democrats. Um, but uh, I guess I would just make a plea um, to people who have committed their lives to relieving Palestinian suffering um, to also take into consideration um, how some of these things might sound um, to, you know, to liberal left-wing Jewish groups. 
um, and to think about ways of talking about um, Palestinian rights and aspirations that that is not going to instantly alienate people. You know, um, and I think that's possible. Um, but everything, uh, like to just go back to something we talked about earlier, everything is moving so fast. You know, it's like because Israel launched this operation against Gaza and they're about to go in, on the ground, it looks like, you know, I mean, in, fair, in fairness to some of these Palestinian activists, it's like there's no time to be like, we mourn with you for the dead. We, we don't endorse what Hamas did. Hamas is terrible. You haven't left them any time. Like, like we started killing Palestinians in response, like instantly. So it's like, it's just, it's just part of the like nexus of frustration for me um, in terms of just like, well, how do I navigate this tightrope myself? Right. Like, how do I communicate that? I, I, you know, I think that the status quo is unsustainable and unjust for the Palestinians while also communicating, I'm really, it's horrifying what happened to these civilians in the Hamas attack. So it's like, I don't know, man, it's, it's just. Well, that it came, uh, came to Chicago. Uh, We talked about this at length last week. I urge everybody to check out a a conversation I had with Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez uh, to the floor of the uh, city council. I think it's your Alderwoman, uh, Alderwoman Deborah Silverstein, had a resolution that she wanted the city council uh, to pass that was essentially very similar to what Joe Biden did, just a blanket endorsement of Israel uh, to do what it wants and uh, to, in my opinion, uh, to her everlasting credit, uh, Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez um, said, let's rewrite this a little bit to at least acknowledge the existence of Palestinian uh, people who are also getting slaughtered and also acknowledge the fact uh, that the the current quote-unquote peace plan uh, that governs this region means just locking Palestinians up. And, um, <laughs> I mean, it's it, it was it's so Chicago what happened, and I won't burden everybody with a recitation of it, but it ended up passing uh, the uh, Silverstein's ordinance uh, resolution passed on a voice vote, uh, David, and just underscoring the point you're making, with the exception of Rosanna Rodriguez, (laughs) few politicians and the older older people in the city of Chicago wanted to take a stand on the record on this. So we'll do it by voice vote, classic Chicago. That solved that problem. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, that just really dramatized things. All right, let's uh, end, as I promised, um, with the Jim Jordan saga. Oh, for three he is. Uh, we, uh, we do a whole show on this, uh, why it matters uh, that there is a Speaker of the House, uh, what it says about the Republican Party right now, that they can't settle on a leader, uh, and uh, just sort of, Uh, What do you expect to come next? So why don't you uh, take it away, David? The floor is yours to close it out. Sure. Um, I mean, first of all, I'm really starting to enjoy drinking my morning coffee over Jim Jordan being embarrassed on the floor of the House of Representatives. (laughs) What a boost to the start of my day. It's like, uh, you know, it releases a lot of oxytocin in my body (laughs) to see this monster lose over and over and over again. Um, but the, the bigger issue is that um, Republicans are in complete disarray right now. Uh, in a way, I've never seen anything like this in either party in, in my conscious adult lifetime. Um, and, and it's we're in unprecedented territory. We've, we've never really had a, like a House majority that was unable to govern because they can't agree on the speaker. Um, and uh, Jim Jordan, as you know, was one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus. It's a hardline um, subgroup in the in the Republican Caucus in, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, longtime antagonist of House leadership, um, has passed no you know nothing that he has ever backed has become a meaningful law in the United States, and he's been in Congress since 2007. Just a lifetime bomb thrower. Um, you know, suck up to Donald Trump, um, just a just a grifty little slime ball who looks, sorry, I'm going to steal this from somebody on Twitter, was like, Jim Jordan looks like um, 
the person in a zombie movie who has been bitten by a zombie but keeps trying to hide it from the rest of the group. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he does. He really does have that like washed out like gray face of someone who's turning into a zombie. Um, and for whatever reason, a majority of the Republicans in the House of Representatives have decided that the only way out of this mess is to elevate the guy who caused it. Right. Like, um, I mean, the only way out is through like one of the, I mean, okay. I think Matt Gates is more responsible for the immediate crisis than Jordan is, but Jordan is more responsible than anyone else in Congress for the massive level of dysfunction that Republicans are experiencing right now. Um, because a lot of these conflicts have been papered over for years and years and years, um, either by being in the minority or by having a large enough majority that you can just like route around the Freedom Caucus people and get things done. And they no longer have that luxury. This has been obvious since like the morning after uh, after the House was called for the GOP. When people looked at the margins and they looked at the, the content, you know, the people that were in the House and they were like, man, this is going to be a problem. Um, I mean, one of the first things I wrote uh, about the House majority was that Kevin McCarthy was about to enter political hell. Um, because he has an ungovernable caucus. Um, he, they do not have agreement on really basic foundational issues. That are, It's like the whole point of political parties is that you get a large group of people on the same page about policy and you are able to govern. And they are just not on the same page about these policies. Um, and Jordan is the manifestation of that. And Jordan is the manifestation of like everything else that's wrong with the Republican Party. He was a ringleader of the 2020 post-election conspiracy, uh, wanted to overthrow the government, um, has been just a, a loyal lackey for Donald Trump, will do his bidding. Um, and this is the guy that they want to put on the floor um, to be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And there just happens to be enough Republicans, I'm not going to call them moderates because they are not moderates, um, but there are enough Republicans who are angry enough about the treatment of McCarthy that blame Jordan for it um, and that have you know, have considered him just a, a gadfly and a thorn in their sides for years, who are just, they're not going to vote for him to become speaker. And Jordan is obviously never going to get a single Democratic vote to become speaker. Um, they've held three votes uh, to try to make Jordan speaker, <laughs> and he, he loses more every time. Right? <laughs> the opposition to him has grown and not shrunk. Um, and so you're looking at this situation and it's like, well, what is the end game here? Like, how does Jordan think he's going to get out of this? Um, and I, I can't sit here and guarantee that he's that they're not going to come up with something to placate these people. But the reports coming out of the Capitol today are like one of the um, one of the Jordan opponents in the, in the Republican Party um, was like, we don't want anything. You know what I mean? Like, there's no quid. There's no possible <laughs> for our They've met, they've met with him privately. Like, Jordan was like, I want to meet with the holdouts. And he met with the holdouts and they came out of the meeting and the holdouts were like, you're never going to be, what we told him is that you're never going to be speaker. We don't want anything. There's no concession that you could make to us. You will never be speaker. You can hold as many votes as you want, um, but you're never going to be speaker. Um, and so I expect sometime in the coming days that that reality will dawn even <laughs> on someone as thick-headed as zombie Jim Jordan. Um <laughs> And uh, and they will move on to some other potential solution to the crisis. I just don't know what that's going to be. Um, I mean, you can understand why people uh, in the Freedom Caucus might not understand um, math and how having fewer votes than your opponents does not actually entitle you to take power, because they they all endorsed the the like hallucination that Joe Biden lost the election, yeah. um, and seem to really have trouble accepting election results that go against them. Jordan's is like, well, I'm going to keep at it. You know, there was a, I don't know if you were like following closely yesterday. Uh, this would have been um, Thursday. Uh, there was a point where it was like, Jordan endorses the plan to make Patrick McHenry, this like bow tied little guy from North Carolina, who's I guess suddenly America's national hero. Uh, they were like, Jordan endorses plan to make him the temporary speaker until they can like, get their stuff together, which everybody knows. It happened until like, 2025. Um, so he endorsed it. And then like a few hours later, walked it back and was like, never mind, we're going to cheat. We're going to keep holding votes to make me the speaker because his own allies in the lunatic freedom caucus were like, no, we're never going to do that. That's effectively giving control of the house to the Democrats. It's a betrayal of our voters. Uh, no way. We're never going to do that. And so you just have paralysis, you know, um, McHenry is the, it's called the speaker pro tem. It's a, 
procedure that was put into place after 9-11 in case the Speaker of the House died in a terrorist attack or something. It was not a procedure designed to like route around a bunch of like intransigent ideologues who can't be on the Speaker. People are like, how are we going to get anything done? And it's like, oh, man, I can just refer people to the U.S. Constitution, which says the House makes its own rules. Uh, any simple majority of people in the House from whatever party could decide to make Patrick McHenry, uh, you know, give him a call him sir and uh, give him knighthood or whatever and grant him dictatorial power. They can do whatever they want. But like some majority of the House has to be like, this is the speaker um, and this is how we will pass laws. And until that happens, the crisis is just going to get worse because we're about to have a, a government shutdown. Um you have a bunch of stuff on the agenda. It's just a huge mess. What an embarrassment. Well, there's only one way out, as I see it, and that is, uh, I forget what number it takes, seven uh, Republicans to give Hakeem Jeffries a call. Uh, and listen, guys, I know what your your calculation is. A MAGA will turn against you. Well, I got news for you. You probably won't win the general election. So I guess you worry about your primary before your general election. Uh, but you might as well cut your losses. Uh, I'll close the show with the latest update. Uh, so this will make you enjoy your lunch. You talk about how starting the day <laughs> with evidence of uh, Jim Jordan's um, humiliation. Well, here we go. Breaking news just came over my phone from the New York Times. House Speaker election. Jordan loses secret ballot to remain GOP nominee for speaker. The House plunged further into chaos after Republicans voted to drop Representative Jim Jordan as their nominee for speakership. Jordan on Friday was unable once again to win over opponents who didn't mind him all week. This literally, literally, while you were talking, popped up on my screen. Uh, I, I have a, my guesses we'll be talking about this, uh, David, in two weeks. Uh, when you return, uh, because it doesn't seem to be solved anytime soon. I, I do expect uh, a thematically similar show in two weeks, Ben. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> oh Lord, yeah, they're not going to suddenly uh, figure out a. I know what they could do in uh, in the Middle East. I'm not going to say long term peace. Don't invade. <laughs> Don't invade. Pull back. Stop bombing. It's not working. It doesn't do anything. It just kills people. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Just stop what you're doing is a good yeah. lesson for both Israel and Jim Jordan. Yes. Yes. Stop what you're doing. And there's some parallels of the, uh, how gerrymandering gives Jim Jordan a, a false sense of security, but we'll save that uh, for another time. Uh, just like Donald Trump gave Netanyahu a false sense of security. Anyway, that we'll hold that parallel to another time. Uh, David Ferris, thank you very much. Excellent job, as always. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks, all right? Sounds great, Ben. Thanks for having me again, and uh, I look forward to next time. All right, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 